Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Do you ever wonder how a single moment can change everything? Today's guest is Venetia Pristovich, an observer and storyteller. Venetia took a picture of a mattress on her floor and that night rented it out to a stranger on the internet. She became convinced of the power of small human interactions and went on to join that small company, Airbnb, as their seventh employee. She rode that rocket ship for five years, but then realized that even though she was the voice of her company, she didn't know her own voice. Our conversation covers turning into others' suffering, why Venetia asks people pleasers about their relationship with anger, and if we've reached peak vulnerability on the internet. I've always felt like I was on the bleeding edge of the productivity literature. I had been reading about this since the late 90s, but I've become disillusioned with the ideas that are out there. To be honest, they're mostly lame. It's all about extracting one more minute out of the day or exercising superhuman willpower. Plus, my life has been getting so much more complicated with the book, the newsletter, the podcast. I had bits of information scattered all over the internet. I found my match in Tiago Forte, who's our only repeat podcast guest and the creator of Building a Second Brain Class. I took his class and my systems are now so damn tight. I spend hours each day just strolling Evernote looking for inspiration or tactically looking for a file like my daughter's insurance card. But here's the best part. There's no friction to getting the ideas in, and it's a total joy to use. Building a Second Brain is a five-week class that starts on November 6th, and a bunch of rad readers have taken prior versions. You can level up your workflow while supporting the podcast by visiting bit.ly slash radbrain. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash radbrain, all lowercase, to sign up. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. And today's guest is Venetia Pristovich. How are you, Venetia? I'm great. How are you? I am doing well. I've been immersing myself in your stories. So I'm, I am super excited to have this conversation today. Let's start with where's your name from? So my, my name is Venetia. My mom named me that <laughs> from England, actually. My mom's from England. And my last name is Slovenian, actually. And I'm in. I'm currently in the process of changing the way I say my last name. I've been saying it my whole life, Pristavic. And I recently just went with my family back to Slovenia, and we went on a sort of quest to find find out where my great great grandfather was from, where they had come from when they went to America. And we we met some of my distant distant relatives, and I said Pristavic, and they went no Pristavich, and I went oh my god, I've been saying this wrong. And I started to feel this ownership to how it was originally said back in my homeland. So, yeah, you're one of the first people that are saying it that way. And now I'm introducing it that way. I know we're going to talk about your career and life has a lot of different creative jumps and, and pivots and journeys. What were you like as a kid? I was, I think I was always just really funny. And when I watch videos of myself, I was always, I think, observing the world. So I was a lot more observational than I thought I was when I when I watched those videos. I watched myself, you know. And then 
from what I remember, I was just very much sort of a tomboy class clown combination. And that's really funny to think about because now what I try and do is embody a lot of my more like sexual feminine side and not have to just place myself in a position of being funny, which was something I had learned as a child was my attention was coming from being funny, but maybe being derived from the, like a deeper meaning that I was feeling stupid. So it was easier for me to be funny than sexy. And so I'm still very much on that, on that discovery and on that path of kind of undoing those things from from my childhood when I look at my childhood self. So this is really interesting. Wow. And it was in my notes, I was going to wait till later, but you gave me the perfect opening. One of the things that really struck me, and, and I can give you some context why it did, I think it's on your on your bio page, you, you wrote the patterns of destructive thinking begin in childhood. And so listening to what you just said, are the two things related in some way? Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot of my work and now my art and sort of the path I'm currently on is all about how to become unmuted, you know, and I think as a, a child, I was very loud, very intuitive, very emotional, very artistic, and I was just in a, like, I was kind of placed in an environment that wasn't able to not only foster that, but sort of encourage it. And so, to no fault of my parents or the situation, it was just my mom raised three kids on her own and came home exhausted. So the idea of a, a girl, you know, like singing at the top of her lungs when you walk in and just being like, please just be quiet, you know, and taking that, taking that personally, as opposed to now I understand I want to hug my mom and go, no kidding. I'd be telling myself to shut up too. Like you just commuted two hours. But as a child, obviously you can't discern, oh, my mom is tired. That's why she's saying be quiet. Instead, you're just you're just taking that as like, oh, I should be quiet. And so a lot of the stuff I talk about is, was from, from those kinds of memories, which you learn to sort of understand as an adult, like, oh, that's why she was doing the thing and have compassion. But you can imagine like your childhood brain is still absorbing that. Wow. I have, I have chills listening to you say that because I, being a male and some of the things that we talked about before, what I've noticed in sharing my story is that the pattern I've seen in men is that there was a yearning for some kind of acceptance. And it could be, you know, depending on the situation, oftentimes it was some kind of parent parental relationship or lack thereof. But mostly it was just acceptance into the, the cool group, which many, many times w- with myself, very specifically meant dating or women, girls, <laughs> girls at the time. And what I found in my story was that that yearning for something that I couldn't have, I develop these kind of defense mechanisms around them. Meaning like, well, okay, I'm not accepted in this current phase, the current state of K, but if I work really hard, then I can make money and then maybe I'll be accepted. Or I'm really skinny and like people make fun of me because I'm skinny. If I like do like lots and lots of push-ups every night. Like mm-hmm. I won't be skinny anymore. And and on the continuum of destructiveness, like it's not 
pretty, you know, it's like, oh, like you wanted to work harder. So like girls would like you, you know, like there are many worse, more destructive things. But what I've found, especially putting out this podcast, because everyone attaches to it in a very different way, but those patterns then continue as an adult. And you just, because they worked, you know, they, they with, with like heavy, heavy air quotes, whatever worked means, but they worked in the traditional lens of society. Like, oh, like you invested when you were like 14 years old. Whoa, like you're a 14 year old nerd, but you're a 20 year old, 28 year old genius. Like, and it's really just fascinating to, because you, you come, come at it slightly in a different angle where it was, you use the word muting or unmuting, which is, I guess, like the, the removal versus the yearning but but they're all i can't break it down but they're all super intertwined in that way and connected for sure and i think a lot for men too i think a lot a lot of the times i ask men about their anger because especially for the sensitive male so we all know that there's certain people on this planet that are just more sensitive and 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 to me a lot of sensitivity is is a lot around intuition as well which i found is connected, but you know, even women is growing up, you lose sight of your intuition. You lose sight of even sometimes your sensitivity for one reason or another. And then for men, especially the sensitivity, wait, where do you go with that? Right. And I have the most emotional brothers, you know, I mean, they're as sensitive as I am. And my, my fiance is probably like equally as sensitive, if not more. And, that that was not something that you know that everyone's learning how now to like accept and so what i think a lot about when i meet a really sensitive guy too i always ask them about their anger like what's your relationship to to your anger do you feel like you can communicate it you know and i kind of take it's kind of interesting because you think well sensitivity and anger how do those relate because you always feel like the really nice guy that's like sitting there and being so nice. You know, I want to see them angry. You know, I'm like, we all get angry. Tell me about that. You know, and they go, I was like, do you get angry? What's that like? You know, and I don't like, yeah, do you find a relationship to that or? Well, I'll answer that. I don't know if it was rhetorical, but I'll jump in and answer yeah. it. Yeah. I, for me, it was all about, it was internalized. It was an internalized and really kind of like ferreted, like buried inside me. And again, I had a very solidly middle class upbringing with loving parents and very little like bad stuff happened to us. So it really is like in the grand scheme, it's like very much like kind of first world ish problems. But but I did, you know, I, I think and you're really making me think about things, but I, I was a please. I am a pleaser. But pleasing, actually, here's what I'll do. I would always, for situations that didn't go according to how the other person wanted to go, I would try to shoulder as much of the responsibility and internalize as much of the responsibility. And I can't really like put it together as to like now where my life's a little bit different. But I, I know for sure that that is a part of the, like the emotional like heaviness that I carried throughout my like 20s and, and early 30s was trying to please everyone when something when there was an injustice kind of explaining it away and and kind of telling myself a story that's like, well, I have a here another part. I have a self-proclaimed high capacity for suffering and discomfort. Like I would brag about like 
taking red eyes and all that stupid manly stuff, <laughs> like sitting in the middle seat. Like, you know, it's like I, like I can take suffering. And so I think that when there was anger, I just kind of was like, oh, I'll, I'll take your anger and I'll, I'll, I can hold that for you because I want to please the situation and like diffuse everything. And I think I just did that for like, like, especially in my adult life, because the stakes were higher, you know, and that the, the, the anger was more real. And I think that 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 was something very, very heavy that I carried. I'm sure. And it also is I've been researching a lot because, you know, I'm a people pleaser as well. And so is my partner. We, you know, realized that we we aimed to to make everyone else happy or, you know, identified in that role in our family. And we actually were realizing both of us had uh, adrenal gland issues and we went to this guy and he, he identified us both as people pleasers and anger is connected to that in a way of control because if something's not going the way that you want, you don't even know that you're getting angry at it. So then you have this residual anger that's happening or people are letting you down or they're not grateful for what you're doing. And he brought up this thing, fight, flight, or freeze. And he was saying that, you know, as a people pleaser, you can leave, live in a perpetual state of freeze which it was kind of a new term that I hadn't even heard of. You know, you hear about running away or fighting, but the freeze is actually worse because that's kind of like, uh, oh, uh, uh, and your whole system, it can actually ride through whatever it is. So if you're just going to confront it, you're going to ride that wave. Or if you're going to leave, you're going to ride that wave. But if you're actually just stopped and stuck, which he said, you know, from a body standpoint, is actually even worse to be stuck in freeze. And a lot of people pleasers are walking around stuck in freeze and over time that can really affect your health whether it's the endocrine system or you're feeling fatigued or tired we had no idea he's the one that connected it to both of us having thyroid issues we're like what this is crazy wow i've heard of the freeze actually recently but i was not flighting (laughs) i was not running because i think i had that capacity to take it and so then just like laying in the free in the freeze and one one like very bizarre example but like fuck it we're going there was that in the kind of peak of my kind of intensity my professional intensity i started to get alopecia so like little chunks of my like hair would fall out and it's like i mean like we haven't met personally, but I'm also like my hair is thinning, but like, it's just like, that's a whole nother conversation of like stuff that fucks with men mm-hmm, yeah. but, <laughs> and masculinity and all that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I never really thought about it. Like at the time I was like, Oh, like, well, like what pill can I take? And you can actually like go get like testosterone, like steroid shots. And then it can like stimulate the hair to grow back like in a little spot. But I'm like, dude, I was like going to the gym. I'm like pretty healthy eater. I, I mean, I, drink like a drink normally but um not like a binger but i was like shoot like now i'm like totally like i was just in this constant state of like anxiety and freeze and like on top of like all the other like stressors of like a high you know hard charging job but but you kind of get like in the in the midst of it you're like oh what can i take to like make this thing go away when you ask that question about the the anger to say your fiance or 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 someone else, what are some of the answers that you get? There's always this moment of you know because you're kind of having a nice conversation, then I'll just say you know what is your what's your relationship to anger? You know? <laughs> We've just met, but I could see you doing that. Yeah, I know. I like to get the meaty bits 
because I love to see the nicest people ever who are already smiling and their eyes are so bright and everything just suddenly kind of check in with it. And I guess I've had a number of people say, you know, one person said, I don't even know if I feel anger, which I could totally relate to. Like, I don't remember. the. Oh, and then sometimes I'll ask, when was the last time you were really angry? I'm like, wow, you know, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes it, we all, we, you know, I personally felt like I had forgotten to f- stop feeling what anger was. So if someone asked me that, I'd be like, wait, what, when? Oh, so that was one. Another one was a lot of the times it's like, you know, I actually don't know. Oh, one guy said, I wish I could be angrier, which was interesting. But he said in his family, he was always just, again, the kind of the, the one that had everything together. So he didn't really have permission to be angry. Another guy said his anger is very personal to him. Like, he's angry, but he doesn't really openly share share when he is. So he's more angry in private, which I was kind of like, well, how does that look? You know, <laughs> just he's like, well, it's like brooding on a Sunday, you know, by myself, <laughs> angry. Because I think society, our society doesn't, I don't think we know how to deal with a lot of different emotions. We don't know how to listen. We don't know how to, if someone's angry, we just want to fix it. So there's nowhere to go to be angry. And if you are angry, a lot of us feel like we're going to bring everyone down with us because everyone's so, you know, codependent and attached to everyone that we are brought down if someone's angry as opposed to just allowing for anger. And so I think what I try and do with that question is sort of give permission for a second to think about it and then open up the conversation around anger so that we can just talk about what are ways that you can, what are ways that we can even start in small ways feeling it again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The one word that I hear that I heard you use was fix, right? Somewhere in that anger conversation, there's a concept of fixing, which is the, which can lead, go in a few directions, like controlling it or repressing it or like, you know, dealing with it as opposed to just like letting it kind of sit in you. And I think that for me being like learning to be more emotional where it's like everything was like, there's like a lane to always be staying in. Like I'm in my work lane, like I'm in my like fun guy lane. But yeah, it is exhausting. And I think ultimately you're doing yourself a, a huge service because it is just part of the broader continuum that is your emotions which are just you <laughs> and by like it's like the the whack-a-mole or something like it, it all kind of needs to come out somehow and on the last thing on the masculinity point is i think by not letting it out you i always tell people a lot of men tell me i don't want to ask these questions that you're asking because I'm, I don't want to know what's going to come out and if I'm going to be changed from it. Yeah, I've heard that. Like a can of worms. Exactly. And, and a lot of the times they're financial professionals, high-performing, highly successful. And I t- what I tell them is, if you don't ask those questions, like whatever is most important to you in, in your job, let's say, because it all morphs into one, the day that you are dealt with one of the most intense decisions that you have to make, all of those feelings will come rushing out all at the same time. Like, wouldn't you want to get ahead of that? Mm-hmm. And what I've found, and it, it's, it's funny that because a lot of your work is around storytelling, is that to, to 
convince people about the the importance of looking within, let's say, in broad category, is just talk to them in their language, which is performance. And so I've almost had to like pitch things, pitch like mindfulness or introspection through the lens of you will be a higher performer. But really what I like my, my back door is like, I think you'll be happier, dude. Right. So the semantics are so loaded. My partner and I also try and we're like, your mind is this thing that's like a distraction. You know, we're trying not to say mindfulness. And I actually took my brother finally to a meditation class. He finally agreed to go like, and he for years was like, what are you talking about? And I swear the guy goes, so, and I, I just sat down with this guy one-on-one and I was like, Hey, I was my brother. Like, and then he said in one sentence, he literally said something along the lines of, well, mindfulness is when the mind in something, something about the self, and then you become aware of the stillness of the mind. And I literally was like, what are you talking about? So I was trying to clarify with him, like get away from these like self and mindful and meditation. Like, what are we trying to do here? And so I totally agree with the kind of the semantics. I I do the same thing where I just kind of, I'm like, Oh, this is i I'm not really talking about that, but yes, I am. You know, and I think that's really, really great. Cause I think we're, you know, it's, it's good to be on the bridge. You know, I don't, I don't need to be like assigned to one thing. I can, I love as a storyteller, you have to sort of meet people where they're at so you're not alienating them. But I think the last thing I would say about the emotion thing just came up was I, I just became a doula, which is someone who... Oh, we just had our second, we just oh, had did? our second child. So we know all about it. Oh, you know. Okay. Yes. Great. And oh, man, okay. Well, my mind was blown open. It was crazy. I just had my first birth experience. And I have this whole theory that everything that you need to know is can be taught from nature. Like, hello, very obvious. If you just observe the laws of nature, you can pretty much figure things out. And so one of the things I thought about was just waves, you know. And if at any point I said to that woman who was having a contraction, like, don't have this contract, you know, like the whole thing is you have to ride the wave. And I think what's happening and I've found this because it kind of relates to freeze. If you think about it, freeze is trying to put a wall in between the wave of emotion, right? Or the wave. And so what I think a lot about is riding that wave of emotion. And when you think about fixing and you think about correcting and adjusting it, you know, it just doesn't work. Like, and I think about birth because that's such an extreme example of no, like you just have to allow the wave to come and it's going to start and then it's going to go and then it's going to be over and you're going to rest. And how wonderful it would be if we were all sort of trained at, and myself included, saying, oh, the wave of anger is coming. Woo! Like, cowabunga, dude. You know what I mean? So I was thinking about that as sort of an interesting thing around like the freeze thing too. It seems the opposite of the, the natural wave in which things come up and then go, you know? My friend Alana has this spray. It's called Trigger Spray. It's an air, a bottle of aromatic water or spray. And you're supposed to use it when someone sets you off. It, you spray it at them and it just like... It gives you that pause, like not like a like a dog barking spray, like a very like soothing spray, but it, it gives you that pause. That's like okay, like let's let's actually. I mean, to use fight or flight, it, it really gets you to leave that flight reflex. 
and it just like kind of gives you that that little break to reset like it's a split second but like honestly that's that's literally all you that's all you need and i think it's to all the the high performers that are listing that are they're probably like where is this conversation going that that split second for me personally is the difference between um well a lot of joy and a lot of suffering um and it's it's like what has enabled me to thrive in this like new creative venture world that I like know nothing about and that I'm kind of making it up every day as I go along. But it is that that like little pause because I could send myself down these like negative rabbit holes like literally every five minutes if I chose to. Wow. Like I said before, we there's no plan. And <laughs> this is like the back half of the interviews done in the front half. But I would be remiss. You were the seventh employee at Airbnb. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? How did you find the company? What were you, how did you get a job there? What were you doing? Tell us that story that, I mean, there's, there are very few of these like top 10 employees of, you know, transformative companies out there. So like, please indulge us. Aww. Yeah. I mean, it was all a magical moment in which like one moment changes the course of so many lives and so much of your own life. It was, it was something as simple as I was on a floor in Los Angeles with my best friend and she handed, we were just reading magazines and she handed me a magazine and she said, my, my friend used to date that guy. So it wasn't even about the, the company. It was just about one of the founders and she'd gone to school with, with Brian and Joe and I, they had a, a, a small write-up about an air mattress on a, a bedroom floor type thing in their apartment. So I read the article and then I went home that night and I signed up my sofa bed in Los Angeles. And my boyfriend at the time was like, what are you doing? This is crazy. You know, who's going to come to our place? And actually the next day I already got a booking, which was awesome. So I got... So as a, as a client, as a user of the site? I was just a user, yeah. And then I just just loved the idea. I The guy that came and stayed brought us pie. I was like, I'm still friends with him. He's amazing. And I was just kind of hooked in terms of, wow, I really think this is an amazing company. What's going on? So then coincidentally, a few weeks later, the founders were, were at a meetup in Los Angeles with all of, you know, 11 people at that time because no one really knew about it. And they came to just do drinks with the community. And that was where I met Brian, Joe, and Nate. And basically, since I was so passionate about what they were doing, I was in the middle of these 11 other kind of hosts and just just pouring forth a very natural exuberance for the concept, for the company. And Brian said, you know, can I come take pictures of your apartment tomorrow? And he came the next day. And the long and short was, he said, would you, you know, do a piece on NPR for us? We're really just trying to find people that really love it and we're not making things up. And then a few weeks later, he said, would you want to be the first super host on the site, which was somebody that people could talk to if if they were thinking about considering hosting? And I was like, yes, please sign me up. And from there, I just said, do you need help? Like I can you know, host events. I can talk to people. I just love what you're doing. And then one day I randomly just said, hey, you know, if you're hiring, let me know. And he got on a Skype call and he's like, fly here tomorrow. Well, he said fly here right now, but it was like 4 p.m. And I said, how about tomorrow morning? So I got on a plane from Los Angeles to San Francisco 
and you know, at this point I was all, I was in production and media and entertainment. So I had no idea what a startup was. No joke. Like I just didn't understand what was happening. Like TV I just production loved- or like movie video production. Yeah. Video production. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. So then I, I got there, the original group of them were just sitting, eating breakfast in the living room of, of the apartment where it all began. And I kind of walked in and I got started. <laughs> I, I did an interview. I just, Brian said, we need help with customer support. There's only one person doing it. So I got on and learned customer support and did customer support for five months or so in Los Angeles coming to and fro San Francisco. And then finally, Brian said, V, like, they just all said, if you really, you know, if you really want to like help us, you need to move here. So yeah, I just picked up my stuff and broke up with my boyfriend because he wanted to come with me, but I wasn't ready for that commitment at that time. And I just picked up and moved to San Francisco. And, and so began the crazy adventure that one of the most amazing chapters of my life. And I talk about that because how a single moment can change everything. I ended up helping my brother get a position there and he's done so well there and his friend get a position there. And my brother, because of that was on a, an event in Bangkok and he met his wife on a dance floor there and they just had a baby, you know, and there's these things where you can like trace, what if my friend never handed me that magazine? Like that would have been crazy. She just handed it to me. I always thank her too. I go, thank you so much. But I was on that rocket ship for almost five years. So, and it was, it was honestly so unbelievable. And there wasn't a moment there that I actually knew what was going on. I had no idea what we were doing. I was just like, this is crazy. <laughs> amazing, amazing, like the most amazing people you could imagine. All working on something that was like truly something we loved and you could imagine how that would feel so it was so cool when you as a user that first time what was it about the i guess the value prop uh, that talked to you so deeply i think the simplicity of it was such a big thing for sure wow this is so easy and of course on you know some sort of meta level I mean, everyone was winning because I was making extra money so I could use that, which was great. And also someone was getting a place to stay. I mean, it was just this really easy, it, it made sense. But of course, the thing that we always came back to was, you know, what, what is it like when strangers with different, you know, opinions and values and things have, have breakfast together or have a meal together or stop and have that small exchange together. And that was what we really felt like was happening in those interactions was that the world the world was becoming of course more connected and global but these small interactions were going to be more you know mattering more than ever and we felt that way from the very beginning so you're on this rocket ship for you you joined in 08 and i joined at the end of 09 and then i was on in for about four and a half five years and then yeah i mean as you can imagine it went to about 1,400 to 1,700 employees in that amount of time with offices all around the world. So it was amazing. You know, it was, it was, it obviously became a very different place, not in a bad way, in a place that needed to support an operation that was going global very quickly. So I was always very excited about that growth. But I'm also, and have always been more of an entrepreneur at heart and having sort of a, a role that is not defined as much or have a yeah, I guess that's the best way to describe it. I just do probably better with smaller teams moving very quickly, moving very fast. 
And also it had been, felt like a really good run, you know, I could still definitely be there because it was very, very, very hard to leave. It was just, it was crazy, like growing something and then having to leave it. It felt like raising a child and then hoping they do well in college. Like you raise them well with good values. Like what, what are they going to do at that party? Like, don't be that girl, you know, and, and trusting of course. And obviously it, it, it was very tiring, you know, I mean, it was like, blood, sweat, tears, the whole thing. And and dr- drawing it back to the earlier part of our conversation, some of this like unmuting and you kind of gr- emerging into some of your more natural expressions. And was did, was that starting? When did those that type of transformation take place? And knowing that it's probably not like a point in time thing. Was it happening while you were at Airbnb? That might be a question. I was telling a lot of everyone else's stories at Airbnb, and I was doing a really great job of always helping, you know, whether it was the product stories or the the, the values of the company or the, the commercials we were making, you know, very good at weaving narratives that were definitely not, I, I guess I would say more, you know, behind the scenes, like in a good way. I mean, I, I enjoyed that at the time. And then I got thyroid cancer in 2013, you know, in the midst of all of this. And I, you know, had this, this thing on my throat. The thyroid gland is a butterfly gland on the throat, as we spoke earlier about the endocrine system. And I, I think I realized later that I just, and I think you can relate to this, but I, I don't know if I was in a good place And so what I felt like I was doing a lot of the time was going into my job and wanting everyone else to affirm me or tell me I was good enough or, and it wasn't, while I was in it, of course, I didn't realize that. But then it was when I, when I sort of removed myself, I went, oh, this is interesting. Uh, I can't point a finger anymore. I like have to point it at myself that I actually had a lot of internal work that I needed to do and that. When I was there, I would say it came from a more frustrated place where I felt like, well, I'm not being heard, but if I really thought about it, I probably wasn't communicating very effectively, if I had to be honest. Even though that was your MO for everything else, you were like the communicator of the firm. Oh, sure. Yeah, (laughs) I was good. Like I said, I was good at communicating everybody else, but if I had to communicate, I like I would be in a meeting everybody would suddenly look at me and I would just start getting hot and red. I'd just, I'd start bumbling on about something. I'd be like, well, I couldn't, I was like, oh, well, if you want to tell me what you're going to say, I'll hit the record button. Like, I'm really good at that. It wasn't until later where I was feeling really frustrated in my voice that I started to dive deeper into, wait a second, this is really interesting. What's my own relationship to voice, expression, et cetera. And a lot of my anger was coming from what I felt like I could be doing better. But of course, when you're in it, you don't know that. So you're pointing fingers or you're probably like angry about the situation you're in. But then if I really thought about it, I said, well, geez, if I only had 15 minutes to communicate the thing, did I communicate it the most effectively that I could? So it was, of course, all in hindsight. And I was very lucky to be in an environment where I felt like There was a lot of patience for that because everybody was just winging it. Let's be honest. We were all like, what's happening? And we were all giving each other the benefit of the doubt for the most part. But the thyroid cancer sort of brought me to a very specific place to my own throat. And that became a very individual journey, you know, outside of any company walls. Wow. Walk us through the kind of range of emotions when when you, I guess, got diagnosed or learned about it and, and how it played out. 
I found it. I was just touching my neck randomly. I don't know. I still don't know why. And I found it and then didn't do anything for months because I just felt like it's kind of weird. But I just was like, well, it's probably just like a cyst or something. You know, I don't know. And I was also like really busy living a dream job. You know, I was traveling and I didn't have time <laughs> time for doctors. And then, yeah, I got a call on a layover from Barcelona which is the basic really worst time to get a phone call if you think about it because you still have, you know, I'm in New York and I have a six-hour flight back to SF and I only have a layover. So you only have like 30 minutes to call your mom and tell her before you have to get on a plane and think about life and you're in the pl- on a plane. And let's be honest, we all get emotional there already. So like I'll never forget that flight of just looking out that window and and really being confused and and they did say, like, okay, if you're to get cancer, this is the best one to get. Which, and they're like, well, and I said, yeah, yeah. All you Backhanded hear is like, compliment. <laughs> yeah, all you hear is like c word, cutting out, and then, and I said, anything you have to cut out, and you're calling the c word, still sounds a lot like cancer. So, yeah. So, I was, I, I suddenly, of course, shifted my priority to my health, and that was where. I sort of got a forced rest of three weeks to, I went to New York for the surgery and that was where I would say a lot happened in that three weeks around like everything stopping. And I mean, I was invited into, I was going to Memorial Sloan Kettering cancer hospital. So I was invited into like the world of cancer. I mean, three weeks before, three weeks before I was on the side of the river where I didn't have cancer. And then suddenly I was, and I'm a storyteller, so I couldn't, I can never look away from anything. I just, I have to see it. I have to look at the person. I have to see the relationships that are going on. I, everyone else is reading magazines in the waiting room, but I'm looking at everyone. I'm going, who's that? How'd they get it? What? Oh no. Like, are they married? I wonder how long. Are they divorced? He's not wearing a ring. What's going on? Why is he here? Is that her brother? Like, and, and then you see all these exchanges taking place, like a sigh of relief or a doctor coming out and the look on their face. I swear it was like, ah, I was like, I was just in Barcelona, like eating tapas. What's going on? So you can imagine that sort of became obviously a later, you know, significant gift in that it changed the course of my entire life yet again. Yeah. I'm see. I'm sure you, you pieced this together, but one of the first things you said about you as a child was that you were very observant, and you made humor. You made humor out of. So it, I I have this belief that kind of our childhood. That there's a philosopher called named Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker philosopher. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes and send send you the link. But he talks about our birthright gifts. And like what we're born with, and then we go older, get older. Society starts to like they're like, oh, you can't be an observant person. You need to be an angry person, and and then society, and then media, and advertising, and all that stuff. And then we completely lose sight of these childhood gifts. And and I think about and and I re- I want to really come back to 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 where you were in your story. Like with me, I was a finance guy and all that. But what I, what I 
when I look back, I was like, I really love people and I love teaching and I love stories. And so I was, yes, I was in finance, but I loved mentoring, you know? And I really can trace it back to my parents, like, introduced us to community service when we were like seven years old. And so it, it, I just heard these two words in, like, you know, a childhood gift of yours and then this transformational life experience. And lo and behold, it's like the same trade. Wow. Yeah, I actually had never pieced that together. So like already so many ideas just came into my mind around that idea of, I don't know, I guess a lot of the things I've been talking about have been around voice, but there's also something around seeing, like not feeling like it's okay to just sit and see. Like I've said to my boyfriend before, I would have been the person in the Roman days that was just sitting in the bath thinking. Like I wish I could just sit and think and observe like this is something that I love but you know we don't really make time for that really so I've had to even come back to this idea that you could just sit and watch and then the other side of that which is a big part of you know a lot of the journey since then was losing my aunt to cancer and and being a really active role in the the dying process of that being her nurse as she left the earth and there's a song on my album around this around this idea of, I wish I didn't see that. Like, I wish somebody could have saved me from seeing. I wish I could just turn away, you know? And of course, I can't help but see. That's the thing. I can't I can't look down. I don't know why. And it's more in when I try and fight that, where I go, stop looking at this. Like, why are you reading this? Why are you looking at that? Stop it, you know? And, and more recently, I've actually been setting a lot of boundaries around what I see. Like, I haven't been able to watch Game of Thrones because, I mean, it really, really, I love the show, but it, I just see violence and then I have dreams about it. Like, I, I can't, if there's an accident on the side of the road, I used to be the person that would have to see, but now I actually just say, like, a little prayer and don't look because I just know I'm going to feel that person and I just can't. Like, and, and now more recently, I'm getting used to this idea of, there's certain things that you just can't help but see. And of course they have a place, but for someone who's so sensitive, I also have to be a little bit like, oh, careful. Yeah. Tell us a bit. I mean, cause you write, you write a lot about your aunt. Yeah. I, I would, I just love to know kind of where the love emerged yeah. from. I love that question. So I've thought a lot about it. I mean, my aunt was like a second mother to me and raised me for a lot of my, you know, formative years. But the way I described it was that she was my, like, safest place. So she, there was never, I mean, she was sort of a, like an angel, really. I mean, she just was classy and strong and smart and loving and giving and generous. And there was, she saw me as pure love, and I saw her as pure love. And so unconditional love, where there was nothing I could ever say that would would get her mad at me or scolding me. And she was always so supportive of, you know, I'd play something on the piano and she'd go, that sounds nice, even if she was in the other room, you know, and I'd think no one was listening. She's like, oh, that sounds really nice, you know? Yeah. And she's the one who taught me that, like the, the best thing she taught me, I guess, was if I could love people like she loved me, if I could even love a few people in that way, that like I would be honoring her forever, you know, where I felt like her love was, her love saved me actually in a lot of ways. Like there were so many times where I was really dark and low. And in that moment, I would think of her and my uncle's love. And I would think, 
I don't know. I just always had their love sort of powering me, you know? And so you can imagine, I mean, not only losing her, but seeing it was probably the hardest thing I've ever seen in my life, you know? Like actually watching someone fade is different than getting a, you know, a phone call or... And so, yeah, that, that continued to be... And I wrote a lot about it just because it was something that, you know, I continue to process to this day and continues to sort of drive, I don't know, like a lot of how I try and continue to live my life through that loss and through that love. And why did you decide to? This might come across as like a misconstrued question, but I know that many people, and I even question myself, where... It, it goes to your point of choosing not to see. It's, so it's like not out of a place of n- not loving the person, but it's in a place of like not being like able to give yourself, I guess. Yeah. I think because she was there for me, that she had bandaged my knees and braided my hair and got me that Backstreet Boys poster, you know, and there was never a moment that she ever wasn't there for me like there was never a moment and whether it was being picked up from soccer practice or treating me to mcdonald's you know and those small things there wasn't sort of there wasn't even a question of it you know we never even talked about it but it also it also became very clear that if i wasn't going to do that you know and also be there for my uncle who was losing his wife of you know 40 plus years I just, I just, there wasn't really a moment where I could, well, so she would have had to stay in maybe a nursing home or a hospital setting. And I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine that for her. And so they said, you know, if I could learn how to, to do some of this stuff, I could work with the at-home nurse and she would be able to be in the comfort of her own home. And she also, yeah, she also really wanted me there. You know, I was able to provide like foot rubs and hand rubs and um, singing and stories. And I think that it was this weird, not weird, but it was just this, this call of duty in a way. And I, and I was, and and ever since then, I've been kind of, you know, more into what does it mean to be like called to something like instead of running away. And I had this woman when I was helping my aunt at the hospital and I, I went and took a break for lunch. And of course this like wisdomic woman appears. I don't even know why. And she, she asked me how I was doing and I told her and I said, well, I'm here, you know, taking care of my aunt before we go home. And, but, and I said, but I'm not like a healer or anything. (laughs) (laughs) I said that and she looked at me and she's like, sweetie, you are a healer, you know? And I was like, what? No, I'm not. (laughs) And yet somehow I was like putting an eye mask on her face and, and lighting candles and praying, you know, but no, I wasn't a healer. So I think I'm still stepping into what that actually means as well. But I felt, I felt called. Yeah. In that Parker Palmer book, they talk about vocation and the root, voc- the root vocation and calling share the same root. And what? which is just like a powerful, Yeah. I gotta read that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like, cause like vocal, vocal or something like ah, that. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, can you describe what your calling is today? Yeah, I think. I mean, something definitely around stories. I think it's it's a some sort of storyteller, and that also includes amplifying and connecting you know, other people's narratives as well. Something I love is helping. I get passion out of also connecting so there's something around 
telling stories, whether it's through film or written word to children and something around connecting as well, amplifying, helping other people amplify and describe and sort of clarify their own stories. I get really passionate about that. And to continue to live a really, like, a life that pushes me so that I can share things that other people are maybe not as comfortable with. I get a lot of joy out of challenging, you know, myself so that I can make things more accessible to people. So sexuality is a huge one, but I sort of approach everything like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, like, (laughs) I don't have any answers. What are you talking about? But also, I just tried, you know, burlesque. Have you thought about it? You know, those kinds of things and making things more approachable and then tuning the story to like what we were talking about earlier, the audience and making the messages more approachable so that when people are like, I don't even think about that. I wouldn't even do that. I wouldn't even think about it. I go, oh, yeah, like, well, it was so weird this time I did burlesque dancing. It really made me think about the size of my boobs, you know, and people are like, why are we talking about boobs? That's like stuff like that, if that makes sense. Do you ever get the pushback from someone that says, well, you could be doing, you know, doing burlesque or talking about your boobs or, or what have you because you have already quote unquote made it in the sense that you were the seventh employee at, at Airbnb, which probably is a good thing. <laughs> and and I think I could because there's a lot of younger folks who listen to this podcast and w- they look at people like you and me and they said and they say, well, you guys have had these great careers. And again, I think if you've been in those shoes, like great is there's many, many shades of greatness, but let's just assume that it's just one flavor of, of uh, well-accepted greatness. And so now you have permission to be wacky, to like be sensitive K on a podcast. Like, but until I've got that notch, that marker, like I don't have permission to do that, I guess, and it, like permission from the outside world, but maybe permission from themselves. I don't, I don't know. Do you hear that? And and how does it sit with you? Yeah, I think that I totally get that. You know, I think that it's basically growing in confidence. In my twenties, I just wasn't that confident because, like I said, I hadn't done any of that sort of work on my own self and things, but. I guess a lot of it comes down to, you know, I don't even, this is the first time I'm actually even sharing a lot of this stuff. Like I'm finally at a place where I'm feeling a little more safe telling my story, you know, and that has taken a really long kind of road to get there. And when I meet people that are so confident in in, in their own voice, I'm like, damn, that's amazing. So I guess to that, I say, you know, I do the burlesque thing because it drives me to an edge and I don't even feel like I need to necessarily share that, you know, it's more for kind of myself. And so obviously, I guess with all the external affirmation, you know, a lot of us are thinking about like, what are we going to put on Instagram and stuff? Obviously it being more about, you know, obviously kind of like your own life and what are you doing in your spare time? And for me, it's doing things that scare me a lot of the time, like taking a stand up class or, because that is something that is my own life. Like that's an experience I'm going to remember. And a lot of the stuff I, I never felt comfortable even sharing until now, but yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes I feel like you don't have to, like, I'm really proud of, I mean, I was, 
I really struggled in my early 20s, you know, in entertainment in Hollywood, like trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. And at that point, I don't know if I really felt like I even knew what my story was or had to share it. You know what I mean? I just had to figure out how to pay rent. But kind of this idea that maybe you'll know when you'll know when you're ready to share, you know, like you don't have to feel a pressure that you're not. Because there's, oh, it's going to continue to evolve. And I don't know, I guess the best way to describe it is like, I finally got to a place in my own life where I thought, wow, like, maybe, maybe I'll share something. <laughs> but you just made me realize something that I hadn't even put together was that, and I'm like going into this old, my own personal like wormhole right now, but there's being vulnerable and then there's being publicly vulnerable. And I, I guess I lumped the two into the same category, but they're completely, completely different things. And we just assume, I guess that there's just, we assume because everything is public that vulnerability must be public. That's one thing. But I think there's another thing that like, and, and I, I'm definitely partially complicit in this, is that public vulnerability is cool today. Yes, it's a thing. It's definitely a trend it's a thing. right now. Yeah. And so, yes, I could be vulnerable, but but like some part of me, like, two percent to seventy percent i don't know <laughs> yeah is recognizing the trend you know and so i think I, i'm glad you you carved it out that way it's like just because you're vulnerable doesn't mean you have to blog about being vulnerable oh yeah my brother tells me that all the time he's the most matter of he's my twin and he literally is like venetia just do the thing you don't need to talk about it he's like look at beyonce she just li like she just and i really think that there's a trend in being vulnerable right now, for sure, that I do, I agree. I think that there's certain things you can be vulnerable about, but, you know, I think that ultimately the the thing I always hope is that my, like, my work or my creations or the stuff I'm hopefully, you know, providing a, I'm, I'm just trying to more, like, I'm trying to focus more on the creativity and what I'm actually putting out than, I guess, like having to blog about the entire process. Although there are people that do that and that's totally fine. But for myself personally, there's a lot of stuff that's like just for me. And that's kind of, you know, what I like think about for that. I don't know. That's super important. And I'm probably going to think about it in, in, through my yeah. own lens. So, mm -hmm. well, this creativity, tell us what's, what are it's the exciting things that, that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I just launched my first album into the world. It's called Congratulations. Glow. Thank you. I um, was doing some work and listening to it. It's oh, really cool. good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm calling it a story album, which just means it's if you listen to it in order, it's 42 minutes. And it's my hope was it was designed as sort of a journey or an adventure that you could go on kind of with me. And it's it's based on sort of the journey I've shared today, which was finding out I got the thyroid cancer and then to this point now where I'm sharing sharing my music which to me was the scariest thing for me to be doing and so I just continue to to work on different kind of projects around children's books for because we talked about developmentally like for children I think that a big part of the stuff I like to do is also for kids and then now I'm working on a show to bring the glow album to life and that's going to be a lot to do with hopefully an interactive experience that allows the person to kind of go on the journey with me. So I'm just designing a, a new show that I hope to like hopefully go on tour with, but I've also never designed a show before. So that's kind of taking my energy right now. The album took a long time and then now the show is sort of the next iteration of that. 
Incredible. Well, hope, hopefully you'll swing it through New York City. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. And where can people find the album? It's just on, you know, Spotify and iTunes. You're, and um, you can just go to my website, vinish.com, and it's there. And it's obviously so hard to sort of get your music out these days, you know, and, and cut through the noise and things like that. So I'm just always so grateful if someone actually takes the time to to listen to it because <laughs> I do believe like my soul is woven into it as much as possible. And that sometimes the journey of, you know, sometimes the journey of, I guess, transformation or whatever you want to call it can be extremely isolating. And so I, I kind of wrote the album to sort of be with someone on a journey if they choose to sort of embark on it. Beautiful. Well, Venetia, thank you so much for taking us through your journey. And my mind has been blown in a few different ways. So I'm like, oh, I need to go think about that thing, <laughs> which is always a side of a, of a great conversation. And I'm, I'm really, congratulations on the album launch and um, excited for everyone to go, to go listen to it. Aw, well, thank you. And yeah, if anyone hears it and a song resonates, I always love to hear what kind of comes up because everyone's got sort of a different reflection on it. So it's been really fun to see how it's interpreted. I'm sort of a new to being an artist, really. So it's fun as a process to see how people kind of interpret your art. It's like a whole new, a whole new thing. Awesome. And thank you for taking the time. My pleasure and look forward to meeting you in person. Yeah, I can't wait. We'll have a lot to talk about. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.